Um, welcome. My name is Doug, one of the pastors here at Parkview. It's a joy to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. As you can tell, we are um, starting a new series here at Parkview. If you were here last week, this may be a surprise. Uh, Deuteronomy? Why are we in Deuteronomy? I'll, let me tell you. What we had planned initially was to be in 1 Corinthians. Okay, But if you guys have been around Parkview for the last couple of months, you know that we are, along with leadership, kind of uh, working to clarify our vision kind of moving forward. And because 1 Corinthians, the passage that we were jumping back into, the section of 1 Corinthians was chapter 11 through um, 14, there's such a concentrated effort on uh, the, the order and place of public worship. And so we really thought it would, it would make more sort of strategic sense for us to having kind of clarified the vision that God's calling us to and, and then being able to kind of jump back into 1 Corinthians and be able to speak specifically about sort of the place and the role of Sunday morning worship within that broader vision. So as a result, between now, so we're going to get into 1 Corinthians later on into uh, the spring. So if you're really waiting for that, just got to wait a little longer, okay? In the meantime, we get to start a new series through the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but like, I am incredibly excited to start a new series um, studying this book of Deuteronomy for a number of reasons. First of all, I mean, this is, this is a really crucial book. Um, it's a really crucial book in the Bible. Now, of course, we could say that about every um, passage uh, in the Bible, but there's something incredibly significant about the book of Deuteronomy. Um, it's, it's, if you have your Bibles open, it's, it's the fifth book um, uh, in the Bible. Uh, but its theological significance just could not be overstated, okay, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is really, really, really critical, as it's, it's the, the last of what's called the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible. What, what the book of Deuteronomy does is it sort of retells the story of God and his people from Genesis through Numbers, okay? So it helps make sense of everything that has gone before it, okay? Um, that being said, it also makes sense in the Old Testament, it helps make sense of everything that's going to come from there on moving forward. So it helps oftentimes throughout the book of Kings, you really need to, or as you look at the, the story of the Kings, and the story of the Psalms and you get into uh, the prophets. I mean, many times you really need an understanding of what's going on in Deuteronomy because it's referred to so much throughout the Old Testament. And so to really have a good handle on, on, uh, on sort of what God is doing in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy is so very important. Not just in the Old Testament, though. It's also incredibly important in the New Testament, okay? Jesus himself, there is no book that he refers to more than the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Jesus is constantly quoting the book of Deuteronomy. So he, he's teaching and he's, he's referring to this very important book, but he's also not just using it to teach, he's also using it for his life, just to live the life that God had called him to, okay? The, the life that he, has been, that he has on this earth, okay? So like in the wilderness, when he's tempted in Luke chapter 4, three times by Satan, tempted to sin, three times Jesus responds, and what does he do? Quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. So it's just practical for, for Jesus to just live, okay? Um, and, and likewise, this book, is, you know, if the book is practical, if it's useful, and if it's precious to Jesus as followers of Jesus, by golly, the book of Deuteronomy should be practical and precious for us as well, Okay? 
What we'll notice as we go through this book is not just does it help us make sense of sort of the grand narrative and the whole story of the Bible, we'll also discover that this book is especially applicable. It's especially relevant to us as a people where we are right here now, 2021, Iowa City, Parkview Church. You will see as we study this book, one direct parallel after another for where we are as a people right here and now. And so this morning, we're going to walk through we're going to really sort of use, as we launch this series, these first eight verses as really an introduction to the book of Deuteronomy. So normally what I would do if we are walking through a passage, I would usually kind of walk by section by section. And this, this passage, I will give it a, a good amount of attention, um, but really it's going to be used to sort of introduce this book and some of the big themes that we will see as we study the book of Deuteronomy. And so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we will dive right in. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this important book. We thank you that you've given it to us, Lord, that you've called us your people and that you've resourced us well with this book here this morning even. And I pray that as we talk through these words, as we consider your words, Lord, we, we believe that they, are, that they are eternal words and they are true words. And our ask this morning is what we ask every single week, Lord, that you would take these words, which are eternal and true, that you would write them onto our hearts, Father, and that you would use these words to shape and to form us so that we might be the people who you have made us to be, Lord. Father, I pray that you would be in this place, that your presence would be undeniable, Father, and that you would right now speak through me. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. So when I was in high school, it's no secret here, you guys know I, I don't like to run. I have to run every now and then just because I've got to balance off you know, the donuts somehow. Uh, but... I don't like running. I just, I hate it. And when I was in high school, I just detested running, did not like running. And so when I went out for the track team, um, you know, when I was in high school, I was, uh, you know, 145 pounds. So uh, just a stiff breeze could maybe just carry me off if I wasn't careful. Six foot five, 145 pounds, there wasn't much of me, okay? So my brothers ran ahead of me. They were very good track athletes. And so the track coach was really after me. You got to be in track. You got to be in track. Like, fine, whatever. Gave into the peer pressure, went out for track. But instead of running, I threw the discus, which was, you know, kind of comical probably if you watch. Right? I just didn't want to run. Like, what can I do? Can I throw something? Yeah, the discus. Great. So by the time I'm a senior, um, the, the, the track team has a new coach, a, a coach who is really, really, uh, he's a college, a standout at UNI, a really good sh middle distance runner. Um, and when he joined the, the coaching staff, he had a real strong passion for the 800-meter run, okay? That middle distance, really, it's a tough race, but he, it was his race, and he wanted to get, by golly, he wanted to get a 4 by 8 team to state, right? And he had three really good 800 runners, and he saw me throwing a discus. And he said, okay, I'm going to work with that one, right? So he approaches me, and he, he tries to spend the first couple of weeks talking me into, yes, you can still run, you can still throw the discus, but will you consider running the 800? Finally, again, I give in, like, fine, I'll give it a shot. And this guy knew what he was doing. He, he absolutely knew what he was doing. He had us running two-a-day practices. I mean, he had this, this running thing just down to a science, right? He, he monitored what we ate. He'd give us sort of guides on how we should eat and how we should spend our time, the amount of sleep we should have, all this type of stuff. I mean, he really took this thing seriously. He had a, a passion to get our team into the state. Now, about halfway through the season, I began to see that as I was doing what he asked me to do, I was seeing progress, Right? I was, my time was actually, I was actually a pretty decent 800. I wasn't anything to brag about, but I was decent. Like, I could hold my own. I, I, you know, I had a spot on that 4x800 team. As the season went on, not just did I see that what he was doing, as I, what told me to do, as I did it was working, I also got to see I was beginning to grow a passion. Like, his passion was contagious for this 4x800 
Okay? By the end of the year, like, we got to state, we accomplished the goal, but it was because, simply because, we, we, we embraced and shared his, his, his desire to be in the state relays, and because we did what he told us to do. Right? We simply did what he told us to do. As we consider the book of Deuteronomy, we see a similar sort of theme emerge throughout the book. 2018, there was a, a, a national women's conference that used the book of Deuteronomy as sort of the centerpiece of their conference. And so all of the teachings kind of revolved around different sections of the book of Deuteronomy. And, and Mary Wilson, when she, when she described, gave a title to this conference, she, she really used just two words to title the entire conference that was kind of found rooted in this book of Deuteronomy. It was this, well, really three words. Listen and live. Listen and live. And as we study the book of Deuteronomy, a very similar message will come to us as we read through this book. That if we listen to the word of God, trust in his word, that we will live. This morning, as we consider this passage that is before us, I want to just preach to you on one big idea. I don't have slides, so if you, I'll repeat this twice. If you want to write it down, you can. But sort of the big idea for us this morning... As we press on together, brothers and sisters, if we want to participate in the mission of God, we must listen to and trust in the God of the mission. Okay? I'll say it one more time. As we press on together, brothers and sisters, if we want to participate in the mission of God, we must listen to and trust in the God of the mission. Okay, just like as I wanted to get to that four by eight hundred meter for whatever it is four by eight relay at state, it depended on me listening to and trusting in my coach who knew way more about running eight hundreds than I did. What we'll see is a very similar principle layout. Okay, now before we get into sort of the the, the structure of the message, I got three points for you. But before we do that, I want to I want to just give a little bit of background. This is an Old Testament book, and so for some of us, some of these stories, some of the words that, that Carson was even just reading, might be like, "What is that name?" Okay, so we'll start off this morning just with a little bit of background, and and, and again because. This is not traditionally how I would preach a message, but as an int introducing a book, I think it is really necessary for us. So the book Deuteronomy itself is, according to the Hebrew tradition, it's, it's called the book of words. It takes its title from those first words there in, the, in, the, in chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke. The, the book of words. The name Deuteronomy that we use comes from the Greek title, which means second law. Second law. However, if you were to really consider what this is, you would see that's actually sort of a misinterpretation. It gets itself from a verse found in chapter 17 that refers to the book of Jesus of Moses writing down a copy of the law. This is not really a second law. What it is is a, a rearticulation, a, a re-preaching of the law of God to the people of God. And so well, we find ourselves here in chapter 1, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, the beginning of this really important book. Moses and the Israelites find themselves east of the Jordan River on the threshold of the Promised Land. Okay? This is a significant moment for the history of God's people. After 40 years journeying in the wilderness, the land now lies just ahead of them. And with it lies the possibility of rest and the possibility of the fulfillment of God's promises. 
Promises that were given long ago to their forefathers, initiated with Abraham. A promise that goes all the way back to the beginning pages of our Bible and consists really fundamentally in sort of two parts. If we think about this promise that God has given his people, we think about it sort of in two different parts. The first is a promise of a people, okay? So the first part is a people. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God uh, had promised Abraham. Many of us are maybe familiar with this passage. He promised, he made a covenant with Abraham that he would become, Abraham would become the father of a great nation. And through the descendants of this great nation, Israel, God would bless all the nations of the world. Essentially what God's covenanting with Abraham to do is to, to make for himself a people. A people that would become his possession that he would use to bless all of the peoples of the earth. So the first part of the promise we, we know has to do with a people. The second part of the promise has to do specifically with a land. Okay, It's more than just a people. God's covenant also involved a land. God's covenant people would one day dwell in the rich land described in Exodus chapter 3 verse 17 as flowing with milk and honey. He would take his people, give them his presence, and he would place them in a land. And that's what God's promise was. So in our passage this morning, this, this promise has been given long, long ago, is now close to being realized. It's close to being fulfilled. As they, as they look over the Jordan, they consider what is waiting for them in the land of Canaan, they are faced, God's people are faced with a critical decision. Will they trust God? Will they cross the river, take possession of the land? Now, now Moses, their leader, is with them, and he knows that as critical as this decision is, it will not be easy. It won't be easy. Trusting God, after all, is not a part of their natural disposition. And guess what? This morning, folks, it's not a part of your natural disposition. It's not a part of my natural disposition. Trusting God does not come naturally to us. doesn't come naturally to them. So he knows that, if they, that, that this is not going to be easy. And he also knows that if they don't trust God, they will forfeit their opportunity to experience the fullness of God's blessing. Challenges, uncertainties await them beyond that river. This is not going to be easy. Moses knows it will be hard. How does Moses know? Because Moses has been here before. In fact, God's people have been knocking at the door of the promise. This is not their first time in Kadesh Barnea. This is not their first time close to the promised land. The last time they were there, Moses watched the previous generation as they failed to take possession of the promised land. A people who refused to trust and listen to the word of God. Now this is amazing, right? Because this is a generation before them that God had delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh out of the land of Egypt. A generation of people who literally saw God do one amazing thing after another. Right? He delivers them from the land of bondage. He leads them in the wilderness by a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He, he, he allows them to cross over the Red Sea by, by parting the waters. God's people walk through on dry land and when they get to the other side, Pharaoh's army is just annihilated by the waters as they come crashing down on the army. 
they, these people, the people who were there the first time, saw God deliver, provide for them bread from heaven. I mean, they saw God do one miracle after another. And now, as they stand there the first time at Kadesh Barnea, knocking on the door of the promised land, of people who had seen God provide over and over again, if anything, this God could be trusted, these people knew it. And guess what? They refused to listen to God. They refused. And this is precisely where Moses begins as he addresses this next generation of people. That was some 38 years ago. So in verses 6 to 8, what we see is Moses begins a sermon. He begins a message. Really, the entire book of Deuteronomy is essentially three messages that Moses preaches to God's people to prepare them to live life in the promised land. Moses, he knows, and we'll see at the end of the book, he can't go with him. God has already told him that this old man is unable to cross the Jordan. He's unable to go into the promised land. And so these are really his final words to his beloved people. Let's look at the the verses in 6, 7, and 8. I'll just read those quickly. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb. When you see the word Horeb in Deuteronomy, it's Mount Sinai, okay? The Lord God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and the Negev, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and in Lebanon as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in, take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. That's what Moses starts. He starts with the story of their parents back at Mount Sinai. While on Mount Sinai, some 38 years prior, God's word comes to Israel and God simply tells Israel, it's time to move. It is time to go. Break camp. Journey to the land that I'll give you. Now we see previously in our text, in verse 2, it is 11 days journey from Horeb Mount Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. It's 11 days journey from where God's people were 38 years ago to where he wants them to be to take over the promised land. 11 days. Numbers 13 tells us the story of why they are not allowed to go in. They journey those 11 days, they get to Kadesh Barnea, and then they, they come up with a plan. Hey, we don't know what's waiting for us over there, let's send some spies. Right, so they, they find 12 spies, they send them over there. Those, those men scope out the land. What's waiting for us? They come back with sort of mixed reviews. On one hand, hey, the land is flowing with milk and honey. We got grapes. This is, great. this is a great, great land. However, they were terrified because it wasn't just flowing with milk and honey. There was people inhabiting the land. There were people that were living there. They came back with reports of massive people. There are giants in the land, massive armies, fortified cities. We can't go over there. They're going to kill us. They're not just going to lay down and give us their land. We're going to have to fight for it. That sounds scary. So they refuse to participate in the mission of God. They refuse to listen and trust God's word. So as a result, God punished them. For 38 years, they wandered around in the wilderness until all but three were dead. Moses, Caleb and Joshua. Everybody else was dead. 
And now, here they are, back at Kadesh Barnea, a new generation, a new people, knocking on the door of the promised land, an opportunity to learn from the mistakes of the previous generation, an opportunity to listen and to trust God. What will they do? That was my introduction. Three quick points, okay? As we consider Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 8, I want us to first consider the mission of God. You know God has a mission? The mission of God. What is God up to in this story? It's, it's really a remarkable story. Is it just a wild ride, the people of Israel on with God? Are they simply strung along willy-nilly in the, in the wilderness for some 40 years? Is it just kind of random chance of events? Not at all. As we read through this book, it becomes evident that there is a purpose behind all of this that serves as sort of the drumbeat or the cadence of not just the book of Deuteronomy, but really the whole Bible. It's this. It's the mission of God. What is the mission of God? I'll tell you what God is after in a very simplified form. God simply wants one thing. He wants his glory to be proclaimed throughout all of creation. That's ultimately what God is after. He, he wants to see his glory spread throughout the entire world. That's his mission. And so for them, then, as they participated in this mission, for Israel it meant that they, they had covenanted with God that they would become his chosen people. This is how he designed it to be. He would, he, would, he would pull out a chosen people from all the nations. He would give them his presence. He would give them his word, his law, his direction. And he would place them in a land. And as they lived out his law, as they obeyed his commandments, the rest of the world would be able to get sort of a glimpse of what God was like. So the idea was, as they morally and ethically revolve themselves around the character of God himself, everybody else in the world will be able to look at Israel and say, okay, there's something unique about those people. And as they looked at those people, they would get a glimpse of what God was like. And as a result, God would be glorified. So, so that's what them, their participation in the mission of God looked like. For us, today, here and now, it looks different. For the church, while the, the mission, is, it's certainly related, it's a part of the mission of God, I'm sure you'll notice there are some differences. God has not called us as his people, as the church, to, to, to storm across the Jordan and to, to take, take possession of a small piece of land. He, he's not called us, you won't see a, a plan here at Parkfield when you walk in about how we're going to take over and conquer some, some foreign land. Okay, Not a part of what God has assigned us to. We are in a different place in redemptive history. And so how do we participate? The way we participate in this mission, it looks different. looks different, just I'll draw your attention to two ways. One is the task. Again, he's not called us to go over and take just a small slice of land to claim as our own. The task is not taking land. The task he's given us is making disciples. Okay? It's a big difference. And Jesus himself, before his ascension, gives the Great Commission and calls his followers essentially to break camp, to, to go, 
Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ commissions his people. Go and make disciples. You have a mission. You are participating in the mission of God. His desire to spread his glory throughout all of the earth is, how, is what he's up to, and this is what it looks like for you to participate in that. The scope is also different. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but, I, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it's not just the task that's different for God's people here and now, 2021, but it's also the scope, right? He's not calling us to one sliver of land. Rather, what he wants us to do is to make disciples of all the nations, right? It starts right here where we are, and from there, it just goes more and more and more. I mean, the whole reason why we're here today, other side of the globe, is because God's people have been faithful to God's mission. We are the product of people embracing and participating in God's mission, okay? To make disciples. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. That's the mission he has assigned us to. And so this morning, Parkview, this is precisely, precisely what God's calling us to. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what God is calling you to. If you're here and you don't follow Jesus, he's inviting you into this. When you, give your, when you trust in the Lord for, for salvation, by grace, through faith, you naturally are enlisted into this. It is not optional. What does it look like for us to participate in the mission of God? Right here, right now, it looks like this. Making disciples. Making disciples. Followers of Jesus. Learners of Christ. And so I'll just stop and pause real quick. And have you ask yourself, and just think about this, what does it look like for you, sort of in a reflective way, right now, to make disciples? If you sort of survey throughout your life, scan your life, do you see evidence of disciple-making happening now? And if you don't, here's the deal. God has brought us to be, remember, we are a people of God together. That's what we're here for, to help you be faithful to what God has called you to do. So if you don't see a place, evidence in your life, hey, that's okay. Let us know. We will help you make that happen, all right? Sometimes the task can seem overwhelming. Oh, I don't know enough. Well, in the Bible, that's not the biblical pattern. I mean, disciples are made, and they go make disciples, right? We will help that, help, help that become a reality for you, help you do that, okay? Let us know. We would love to help you with that. Secondly, so we consider first the mission of God. Secondly, I want you to think about the method, the methodology of God. The mission of God is to bring glory to himself through all of creation, God has given us a vision and a desire to spread his glory throughout all of the world. He does this through a people. Now, this is an important distinction of the mission of God. Okay? God has determined that his mission will be accomplished through his people. As I was reading this passage this week, I was struck. One of the things that stood out to me was God's insistence on using people. As you read through this story, these, these people, if you read through the, the, the history of the nation of Israel, do you know what these people are not? Impressive. They're not impressive at all, right? Because they have seen God provide over and over and over again, one miracle after another. And do you know what it comes, what it produces? One complaint after another from these people, 
right? You would think if anybody would get a vision for what God is doing, it would be these people. But instead, they grumble and they complain. Not a good look, okay? First generation of Israel, a chosen people, delivered from bondage. They had every reason to trust God, yet they refuse to listen to him and to take possession. God's response is not, fine, I'll do it by myself. That's not what he says. No, what God does, he, he insists on using a people. Not because he needs the people, but because God wants the people. He recognizes that as we participate in his mission, it's actually for our joy. These are his people, and he has a plan, and it involves them. And guess what, Parkview? It involves us. The same is true for us today. God loves us. And in order to save us from our sin, he sends his son on a rescue mission. Everything about God's nature is, it is, it, it aligns with this mission. He is a sending God. He sends, he sees us in our mess. He sees us in our filth. The only way out is if there's somebody who would rescue us in our sin. And so God, the father, sends the son on a rescue mission. And Jesus does what None of us can do. He trusts God completely. Completely obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. And now watch this. Those who put their trust in Christ and the work that he accomplishes, the Bible tells us that he has delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son. He places them, us, in the context of a people. 1 Peter 2.9, why does he do that? He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Notice the, the communal aspect of the people, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the idea is that God rescues us to himself as a people and then sends us out and says, proclaim my excellencies to all the nations. Tell everybody how great I am. See, bound up in God's very nature is this missional idea. The father sends the son. As the son lives his life and is crucified and resurrects and, and ascends to heaven, together the father and the son, they, they send the spirit. And then the father, the son, and the spirit sends the church. By Christians, we, as being Christians, we are by definition a missional people. So we have the mission of God, the method of God, specifically using the people of God. Now I want you to lastly look at and consider with me what it means to trust in the means of God. Now for these people at this time, they were facing a decision. How, how were they going to respond? And as we see throughout the book of Deuteronomy, it, it's fundamentally a book about making decisions. In these first three chapters, the nation is reminded of the decisions that have been made in the past. Okay? But they are presented with a new opportunity in the present. What will they decide? What will they do? Will they learn from the failures of their fathers? Will they decide to press on? Will they boldly take one step of faith after another, confronting new challenges, new fears, walking into the land of the unknown. Will they listen? Will they live? 
For these people, this is a decisive moment. You can be sure of that. And Moses knows this. He, he knows he's not going to accompany them into the land. He recognizes that in order for, for these people to press on, they must place their trust in God. Their, their confidence in accomplishing God's purposes is not because they are a mighty and numerous people. That's, that's not where their confidence comes from. But rather, their confidence is coming from the fact that they're accompanied by a mighty God. See, the problem that their fathers made is they walked into the land, they saw giants all over the place, and they compared those giants to themselves. And they said, those people are bigger than us. They made the wrong comparison. What they should have done is they should have walked into that land, saw all the scary things, and compared those things directly to their mighty God. And if they would have done that, they would have marched into the land. Because the means by which God is accomplishing his purposes, he uses his people, but ultimately it's his hand. It's his power that is doing his work. The only reason the people of God can have hope to accomplish the mission of God is because of who the God of the mission is. And as we participate in this mission that he's called us to, we must never lose sight of who the God of our mission is is so that's why in his final moments with these people Moses' sermon is essentially a recounting of god's faithfulness of god's demonstration of his grace and his power so that they would be emboldened and encouraged to place their trust in god and to take one step of faith and obedience after the other likewise as a church we also find ourselves sort of in a decisive moment in the history of Parkview. And there's no question of the opportunity that's before us, right? He's made it clear. What's the mission that he's called us to? To go and make disciples. As we consider the scope of the mission that we have right now, our own community, the harvest is plentiful. There are no shortage of opportunities for us to share the good news of the gospel, to, 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 to demonstrate the good news of the gospel, to tell people about the hope and the life that we have in Christ. There's no shortage of people who need to hear that. The opportunity is before us. There's no mistaking the task. The question is, how will we respond? Will we listen and live? Or will we cower back in fear of the unknown and stay in a place that's maybe more comfortable? Finally, I just want you to look at verse 8 again. As God's word, Moses is speaking God's word to the second generation, telling them what God said at Mount Sinai. Listen to what he says. See, I have set the land before you. He wants them to see the land before them. Go and take possession of that land, that land that the Lord swore to your fathers. He wants to give them a vision of what he's calling them to. In 1968, on April 3rd, Dr. King, the night before he was assassinated, he delivered what would be his final speech, famous speech, oftentimes referred to as the mountaintop speech, in support of the striking sanitation workers that were there in Memphis. I just want to read a... What he's doing in this speech is the same thing that God is doing. 
okay? Listen to what he says at the final sort of moments of his speech, the final lines. He says, well, remember, he's, he, there's this eerie sense as he gives this speech that he knows what's coming, right? He's already, had his, he's already been stabbed, almost died. He, he, the resistance is growing. He, he has a, a sense of what's happening, okay? The parallels here are pretty striking. Like Moses, he, he knows he, he may not go with them into the, the promised land, right? Listen to what he says. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. Got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. Not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. See, Dr. King has a vision, right? Often referred to as a dream of what this world could look like. Specifically what this nation could look like. He has a, he has a vision. And, and what he wants to do is inject confidence in the people that that vision can one day become a reality. I've seen it with my eyes. I've walked up to the mountaintop and looked into the promised land. I see what it looks like. Right? What he is trying to do is inject confidence in, what, in these people about what could be. In some ways, as we consider the mission that God has called the church to, this mission to make disciples, we would be wise to do the same thing. Only we have a picture of precisely what this vision is, what God is, what everything is trending towards. The book of Revelation gives us a real clear picture of what heaven is going to be like. Remember God's mission to, to make glory for himself among all the peoples? Listen to the description in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to, the, to, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Folks, as we consider what it looks like for us to participate in the mission of God, we have all the confidence in the world that what God is after, he's going to get. He will be glorified throughout the nations. People from every nation, tongue, and tribe will worship him on the throne one day in heaven. That's without question. What is a question that every one of us needs to ask is, Will I participate in that? Will I become a, be a part of making that happen? And that's the task before us as a people. Will we join him in what, not just what he's already doing, but what we know for sure he will do? I mean, that should, that should like put a little bit of a pep in our step, right? Like, you actually can't 
mess this up. I don't know about you, but that feels really good to me. I mean, you just can't. You just can't mess this up. He's going to do what he says. And it's our joy to participate with him in that. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word and just, uh, just that reminder there as we consider just the vision of what you are accomplishing in this world, Lord, and just the, the tremendous privilege and joy it is for you to invite us into that process. Lord, I pray that we would each um, sort of have, just take a, a bold step and, and reflect on our own lives and, and ask ourselves that question. Are we participating? Are we, can we see places in our life where we're making disciples? And if we can't, Lord, I just pray that you would give us the confidence, once again, that we can't mess this up, and you would give us the boldness to ask for help. Lord, I pray that as a church that we would come alongside one another and as we speak the word, the good news of the gospel to one another, Lord, that this would be a place where, where disciple-making is just a part of the culture. Lord, help us to that end. For that to happen, we need your help, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen.